Judges chapter 10, verse 6, to chapter 11, verse 11. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. The Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. The Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, They drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. When the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, 
I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. And as the story goes on, Jephthah sends messengers to the Ammonites in an attempt to negotiate a peaceful solution. And we'll carry on with the story later, picking up at chapter 11, verse 29. We pick up the story at chapter 11, verse 29, after the Ammonites have rejected Jephthah's attempt to negotiate. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering." So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from the Aroah to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Kerimim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite for four days in the year. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim, because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? 
When he said no, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel for six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. God speaks to us in ways that we can understand. Throughout the Bible, we see him using the very fundamental experiences and categories of human life so that what he says about himself and his message, we can really understand and also feel. I mean, things like agriculture. All humans understand that. And so God says, I am the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He says that the kingdom grows like a seed in a field. Or things like war. Everyone understands about that. And so God says, fight the good fight, having put on the whole armor of God. Or romantic love. Again, a fundamental part of human life. And Jesus says that I'm the bridegroom. He's the one who lays down his life for his bride, the church. Or family. It's another fundamental part of our experience of life. And so God presents himself as God the Father and God the Son. He says that we're his children. And it is in this language of family that we hear him teach us from this passage this evening. It's a family story, the family story of a man named Jephthah. And his family story, what we'll see is it gives us very powerful pictures of the gospel, of God's message to us as men and women in his world. Family stories are powerful, aren't they? I guess we all have our experiences of families, for better or for worse, and so we intuitively understand, we emotionally are engaged by stories of families, and that's why literature and films and TV are so full of it, whether it's EastEnders or the Waltons or the Simpsons. Everyone understands family. We can all relate when God speaks to us in these terms. It helps us to understand and also to feel the gospel, to feel it, because we feel emotional about families. Now, in Jephthah's family story, there are two really big events. First of all, he is betrayed by his brothers, his half-brothers. They boot him out. But then, a bit later, they come crawling back to him because they need his help. The second thing is that Jephthah ends up losing his only child, his little girl, his daughter. So maybe it's true to life. This family story is full of pain. But the purpose of it is to help us to feel the good news of the gospel, of God's message to us as men and women in his world. Because it ends up, this family story here, being a picture of how we betray God, how we treat him, the way that his brothers treated um, this man Jephthah, it's a picture of how we treat God. And a picture of, secondly, what God gives up, what God was willing to sacrifice to be our Savior nonetheless, his precious child, his only son. On the sound desk at the back, there are all sorts of buttons and dials that um, do all sorts of things. And if he had a mind to, um, David could give me a, a big, deep, booming voice by 
changing the EQ, or he could give me a little high squeaky voice if he wanted to, or he could shut me up altogether. I, even I know where the button is that does that. In the passage this evening, as God shows us this family story as a picture of the gospel, it's as if there's a button on there marked emotional power, and God turns it right the way up. He helps us not just to understand, but to feel the pain of betrayal and the price of rescue. That's what we're going to see this evening. But before we get into that, there are, there are three preliminaries, three preliminaries, and um, I'll run through them very quickly. First of all, very simply, at the level of events, what is going on? Well, here is a map. I like maps. Um, I didn't make this one, although I made the River Jordan more blue because it, it, it was kind of invisible. So um, the, this is the land of Israel in the time of the judges. It's broken up into the tribal regions. You'll see there are tribes on the east side of the Jordan and the west side. And um, where most of the stuff is happening is in the mountains up here. Can we get the next slide? Um, that's where um, uh, this family story is taking place. Um, and underneath them, you'll see the Ammonites, who are the baddies in the story. They rise up, and initially, they attack, um, they attack the hill country on the east side of the Jordan, and um, eventually, though, they cross over, and they attack some of the other tribes as well, and um, what we find is that these guys, the Ammonites, they're really bad news, and the people of Israel, they end up um, crushed and oppressed, severely distressed, and in misery. And so they cry out to the Lord, and God saves them. In a roundabout way, he raises up this guy, Jephthah, from up in Gilead, who beats the Ammonites in war, and Israel has peace again, at least from them. With all the detail taken out, that's roughly what's going on, and um, I had to read this a number of times, so maybe that's, uh, that's a helpful thing to have the kind of the big picture of what's going on. Um, that's the first preliminary. Secondly, um, how can we honestly learn from a horrible story like this? Because it is a horrible story. It's, I mean, it's full of horrible things. There, um, it's horrible what happens to Jephthah and his family. He gets booted out. It's not his fault who his mum is, but they put him out. And then there is this war with the Ammonites. And then there is civil war. And in the middle of it all, there is this vow and the sacrifice of Jephthah's innocent little daughter. It's a horrible story. But the thing we need to see, and um, we've been seeing it again and again in this book of Judges, is that these events, the stories here, they are, um, put it like this, they are pictures, not patterns. Let me explain what I mean by that. Often when we read a story, like you think of Aesop's fables, but often it leaks in when we read the Old Testament, what we're looking for is, what's the moral of the story? What's the example? Is there a who are the good guys, and I'll follow their example? Or who are the bad guys, and what mistakes do they make, and I will avoid that negative example? What's the moral of the story? Because fundamentally, often what we're looking for is some kind of moral instruction for me now for my life. But the problem is that like most of the Bible, like almost all of the Bible, this book of Judges is not primarily about practical moral instruction. It's not a pattern for what we should do or not do. But rather, it's a picture of what the Lord has done for us in Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus and his grace to us 
and how he saves us. And of course, it then does say things about how we respond and how we live in the light of that. But these are pictures of God's rescue. It's not moral instruction for us, first and foremost. Think about Jephthah. That's the, that's the trouble here. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Well, he's sort of both. He's wronged. He, he is very forgiving, but then he makes this stupid vow, and then he slaughters a lot of his own people. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Well, he does a lot of bad stuff, but then in Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, he is mentioned among the heroes of the faith. It's complicated because he's not really a good guy or a bad guy. That's not the point of this. And so the reason for dwelling on this um, second preliminary, it's about the vow, the vow that he makes in his daughter. It's a bad vow. It's a stupid vow. It's a wicked thing to try to bribe God and force his hand by saying, well, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. That's not how God works. That's not grace. And it's a stupid vow. What was he expecting to come out of his house? Surely he saw the risk. It wasn't right for him to make the vow. It wasn't right for him to keep the vow. And actually, in Old Testament law, there was provision for how to get out of a stupid vow that would have... um, involved sin in keeping it. It's not what God wanted, but none of that's relevant because this is not a passage about watching your words. It's not about that. It's a picture of the gospel. Third preliminary, um, can we really draw spiritual parallels or spiritual lessons from the literal story of Jephthah? What's the justification for drawing spiritual lessons from this literal story? Because these are just events that happened. How do we know that we can draw spiritual lessons about our relationship with God from them? That's an important question because a lot of stuff is said about the Old Testament that has flimsy justification. Is that what I'm doing? Well, What I want to try and show you just very briefly under the heading of this third preliminary is that this spiritual parallel is not something that I'm reading into it, but something that's there in the passage that we're meant, as we read it, um, to see. If you look at um, how the passage begins from chapter 10, verse 6, and then how chapter 11 begins, there's two conversations. They are uh, side by side in parallel And I think that we're meant to see that the conversations follow pretty much exactly the same form. So step one, there is betrayal. On the one hand, the people of Israel have betrayed the Lord. They've forsaken him again. And on on the other side is Jephthah. He's betrayed by his brothers. However, the Israelites and Jephthah's brothers both end up in trouble. And so they end up asking for help. And who do they ask? The person that they've betrayed. Israel comes and says, God, please help us. Please help us. And uh, his his half-brothers come and say, oh, Jephthah, please help us. And initially, both the Lord and Jephthah say, no. Not after what's happened between us. No. There is a reluctance. Step four, Israel, Jephthah's um, tribe, They say, oh, please, and they improve their offer. On the one hand, with the Israelites, they say, well, put away the foreign gods. It's for real this time. With Jephthah's family, they say, well, okay, you can be our leader. 
And then step five, the final bit, as the story goes forward, there is obviously some willingness to help on the part of the Lord and Jephthah. Now, when you spot something like that uh, in a Bible passage, when it's, it's clear, I think that's pretty clear that these two conversations, these two relationships are running in parallel. I think that that's not an accident. And we're meant to read that and say, ah, okay. So the second thing, the, the, this family drama that plays out is a kind of a picture of the spiritual reality between the Lord and his people. So I'm, I'm not to pulling a rabbit out of a hat. I think that's how this passage is written and that we are actually meant in the writer's mind to learn spiritual lessons from the literal, plain, historical story of Jephthah. Right, enough said. Let's get into it. Like I was saying, as we look at this, it's a powerful picture of the gospel in two parts. And the first part, the first thing that this shows us, helps us to understand and remember, helps us to feel, is the pain of betrayal. So Jephthah, his, uh, his mother was a prostitute. Um, I guess it, it seems like in the story, maybe um, before he was married, um, Jephthah's father visited a prostitute. Jephthah was the, the offspring, and he lived in his father's house. But after that, his, um, his father also had some children with his lawful wife. And so in the household, you have these half-brothers. Until the day that his half-brothers are strong enough, and they drive him out. They drive him out. And we can imagine that. They say, you're not really one of us. You will not have your share of the inheritance. You don't belong here. Out! And they drive him out. And in that, in that society, if you think about it, this isn't just a case of moving away. He loses his place in the household. I guess in, in some ways, maybe it doesn't say it, but he might have been the oldest. He loses his place in the household. He loses his place in the community. He's driven out. He's an outcast in that society of non-mobility. People moving around, it's normal for us, but then you don't move around. You stay in your home, but he is homeless. And we read that he ends up in the mountains with worthless fellows as a sort of a bandit in the highland area. And the thing to focus on here is the betrayal of it. These were his people, his family, his clan, his half-brothers. And yet, that is the word that's used in verse 2, if you look at it. They drove him out. Or verse 3, he fled from them. Think of the pain of that betrayal. And I know that as I speak in a room, uh, group of people this size, some of you know all too well the pain, the very close-to-home pain of family betrayal. Um, a friend of my, uh, my brother's, um, an old flatmate of his, um, she has nice brother and nasty brother. And I, I've met nice brother. He lived nearby around the corner and seemed fairly ordinary. He came around for breakfast, as I remember, one time when I was staying there with them. He's, he's nice brother. Nasty brother is called nasty brother because he, he embezzled the money from the family business and um, drove his parents into bankruptcy. So they lost their house. They lost everything. And he, um, so he doesn't live around the corner. He lives far away because he um, swindled his family for about half a million quid 
and then skip town. So nice brother, nasty brother. That's a true story. And um, some of us may know firsthand or uh, secondhand the pain of family betrayal. But that is what we see in the story of Jephthah here. He is driven out. And you would think the relationship is over. He's far away. He's moved out. The bridges have been well and truly burned. And yet, because of the Ammonites, they come crawling to him. And it emphasizes, in the story, doesn't it? It emphasizes the pain of that because you're, you're, it puts you in Jephthah's shoes and you think, well, after all they've done to him, they have the cheek to come and ask for his help, to come and ask him to fight for them, no less. They were no brothers to him. And yet they come because it says that he, he's a good fighter, he's a good leader. They were no brothers to him. And yet they come to him and ask him to act like a big brother for them, to help them and protect them. And it puts us into Jephthah's mind. And we think, how dare they, after the pain of their betrayal? But all of that, that first part of the family story, is to help us feel what's just happened in chapter 10 in this parallel relationship and conversation between Israel and the Lord. Just have a look at that, please. Verse 6, the, um, the people, it says, I mean, they had forsaken the Lord and turned instead to a whole menu of other gods, the Baals, Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, and Sidon, and Moab, and Am- uh, the Ammonites, the Philistines. It seems like they'll serve anyone but no, not everyone, not the Lord, him they forsook. God's anger was aroused. These were his people. He had brought them out of Egypt. He had brought them into the land. He had given them everything they had and all that they were. They were bound by promises that he had made and they had made. They were his people, and yet they forsook him. And he's angry. He hands them over into the hands of their enemies they're miserable. Verse 10, they cry out. And just look down, please, at verses 11 and 12. Effectively, what's happening there is God says, look, how many times have we had this conversation? How many times have you gone off with other gods, and it doesn't end well, and you come crawling back to me? You keep doing this. You're not sorry, and I'm not going to help you anymore. Verse 13 there, if you look at that, has some of the scariest words in the Bible. I will save you no more. And it's understandable, isn't it? Think of Jephthah and how he would feel when his brothers come crawling to him after all they've done. Maybe, um, especially if we've been in church for years perhaps, we, we often think of God's forgiveness as something that is quick and easy, something that is automatic, but it's not. This is a very painful conversation. This is a very painful situation between the Lord and his people. It gives him great pain. It's not an automatic thing. He says, I'm, I won't save you anymore, and that doesn't end up as his final position, but we can see how he feels. It's easy to think of God in purely conceptual terms. Well, this passage won't let us do that. This passage, as 
is um, showing us the pain of betrayal. And the thing is that for us, we need to see that this is our betrayal too. It's not just the Israelites who know how to cheat on God and betray him and forsake him for other things. For example, he promises, he promises to keep us safe. He says, look to me, you're in my hands, I will keep you safe. Put your confidence in me as you face the future. But we say, well, no, I've got, I've got money for that, thanks. And it's hard, isn't it, in our hearts? Why, why do we feel secure or insecure? Because my balance is a certain way at the moment. Well, God promises to give us joy in knowing him and serving him. But we think... Nah, I've got football and wine and fill in the blank as you wish for that. Well, God promises that we'll have meaning and purpose from him. But we say, wow, I've got jobs and my projects and my family for that. Now, none of those things that I've mentioned, none of them are bad things, far from it but they become idols when they claim the top spot in our hearts. And we compound the betrayal by asking for his help. Please, Lord, bless my schemes. Please, Lord, solve my problems. Please, Lord, save me in the end. It's very easy, I find. It's very easy to see sin as a a petty infraction I, I broke the rules. Who cares? It doesn't really matter. But it's not. It's a very personal betrayal that the God who has given us all we have and all we are, the God who loves us, and we look elsewhere, we find our satisfaction elsewhere. We love other things more than him. I wonder if that's how you see your sin. I remember it was a radical transformation. I was looking into Christian things my first year at university, and I'd always, I struggled to understand when Christians spoke about sin, because I wasn't a bad guy. I didn't break the rules. I was a conformist, relatively uh, too scared to do anything too bad, no worse than other people. Why do I need to be forgiven? I'm not a bad guy. But I saw it wasn't about those things. It was about how I had treated a person, this person. If I had not been loyal to God, I'd ignored him. I wonder if you've come to that realization yet. Or for Christians here, as you face temptation, I wonder how you'll feel about that in this week, in the moments of this week that is to come, when you will feel tempted and you know what's right and you know what's wrong and you have a choice. You think, well, it's no big deal. It's just break the rules. What? Or will you think, I must be loyal to my God? It helps us to turn away from sin and to keep away from it. When we see the pain of betrayal, it's as nasty and as bitter as a brother turning on a brother. It goes against all the bonds of natural affection for a creature to turn against his God, her God. It's the pain of betrayal that this passage shows us. And then secondly, finishing the story, 
finishing the picture of the gospel, we see, secondly, the price of rescue. Um, In spite of the betrayal, both the Lord and Jephthah agree to help the people who have come asking them. And the situation develops as follows. We didn't read it, but um, he attempts some uh, negotiation with the Ammonites. He tries to say, look, guys, this land, it's not yours by rights. Please leave. But they don't listen, and so it's off to war. He rallies his troops, and he goes off to fight them. But as he goes, there is this vow. He says, whatever... uh, uh, Well, let's read it. Verse 30 of chapter 11. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me on my return in peace uh, from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. He makes this vow, and it sets up. That's before the... um, That's as he's going off to fight, as he's going off to save Israel... And the way that the story is told like that, it it sets up a question. What will be the price of victory? What will will the price be? What will come out of his doors and meet him? What will be the price of salvation for Israel? And then he goes off, and he fights the battle against the Ammonites, and he is successful, and he comes back, and it's time to find out the answer. What will be the price of rescue? Now, first choice has got to be livestock, right? He's hoping for some sort of livestock. I guess, uh, like in the olden days here, people would keep animals inside their house. But that's got to be first choice. Second choice, a pet. I mean, it'd be sad, but, but it's neither of those things. It's his little girl who comes out celebrating to meet him. And just read with me verses 34 and 35. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. What was the price of rescue? What did Jephthah have to pay to save Israel, to help these people who had betrayed him? It was his only child. And the high price of it is marked by the whole country in the rest of the passage So the rest of the chapter there, the whole of Israel recognizes the sadness of this, that for this poor girl, for whom in the terms of their society life had barely even begun, her life was the cost of rescue. And so there was this national mourning, an annual mourning, but surely the greatest and the deepest mourning would be Jephthah's personally alone Now, as we think about the reality of this, a father thinking about a son or daughter who has died, we're on sensitive grounds. And here as well, it's not 
just that a son or daughter has died, but that the parent had somehow a hand in that death, that the tragedy was somehow brought about by this loving parent. We think how Jephthah would have felt. The uh, verse that Robin read at the beginning of the service, John 3.16. Maybe we read that. We find it quite familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, whichever sinful betraying person like me or you believes in him, would not die, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, in some ways, as we look at the story of Jephthah, it's a very imperfect picture of God the Father sending his son. It's a very imperfect picture because it wasn't the outcome of a stupid vow. It wasn't needless, senseless in the way that this was here in Judges. And it wasn't involuntary either. It was the son's will to obey his father and go to his death to rescue his people. It's not a perfect picture, far from it. But it is a very powerful one. I think, again, if maybe especially if we've been Christians for some time, it's easy to think about salvation, the gospel, the cross, as a transaction. The story of Jephthah is helping us to see, to picture, to feel the very deep pain of the Father sending the Son. Helps us to feel the lengths that God was willing to go to to help us feel the price he paid for our rescue. And practically, that's a powerful thing for us. It's... um, It helps us to be loyal to him. helps us to be loyal to God when we see how he has loved us. It makes it easier to trust God's loving rule in our lives. It's tempting, well, I find it tempting, I don't know if you do, to pick through the circumstances of life and play that game. He loves me, he loves me not. It depends how well things are going or badly. He loves me, he loves me not. Well, when we see the cross like this, it puts an end to all of that. Do you know that verse, Romans 8, 32? If God was willing to give up his son for us, then we know we can trust him for everything else. From now on, we look at the cross, we see the price he paid, and from now on, he gets the benefit of the doubt. Not that things are always straightforward, but having seen that, He gets the benefit of the doubt with his management of my life, whatever happens. And this powerful picture also helps us to find the motivation in response. That as we see what God has done, often we are sluggish to turn away from sin, to live for him, to seek to serve him. But even more than those practical things, the things we do... As we see this picture, it helps us to love him back, to love him back. I remember being struck a few summers ago by Psalm 18, verse 1. 
Very simply, it begins, I love you, Lord. I'm thinking, I wonder if I could say that. I wonder if I can pray that. I love you, Lord. I turn to you personally. I love you, Lord, because you gave up your son for me. You paid the highest price. That's the power of Jephthah's story. He wasn't a perfect leader. He wasn't that great a guy in many ways. We read through the end of chapter 12. We don't really have time to look at it, but it ends up in civil war. He kills 42,000 Israelites. He's not the leader we've been waiting for. He points us forward to the Lord Jesus, the one who is. But for us, his story is powerful. It helps us to feel the reality when we sing words like this. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Why don't we pray silently, just on our own for a few moments, and then we will sing those words together. Let's pray.